Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hello, listeners. Thank you for joining us, and welcome to episode 139 of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Aaron, and here with me to discuss this classic Disney fable starring the incomparable Julie Andrews is my best friend and co-host Patrick. Hello, governor. <laughs> and I'm thrown off. <laughs> I didn't know what you were going to go with, but I like that. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, with an Emily Blunt Helm sequel right around the corner, Patrick, we knew that now was the time to have this conversation about the original musical tale that has long remained in audiences' hearts. But first, an announcement. We recently compiled the results of our December donor pick, Minisode Voting, from our amazing patrons. This month, we are having them choose our annual Christmas movie for us to cover. The five films that were up for the voting were The Polar Express, Miracle on 34th Street, Love Actually, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, and The Santa Claus. It came out to be pretty close between Christmas Vacation and The Santa Claus, but Christmas Vacation did win out, and that will be our December donor pick mini-sode, which I that am... Make, yeah, that makes me hap, hap, happy. Makes me... Very happy as well. I've already watched it once this year. I watch it every year uh, the day after Thanksgiving, uh, on the day that I put my tree up. And even just the last couple years is when it became like a five-star movie for me. It's in my top 100 now. I absolutely adore it. So Wow. That's that's, yeah. very, that's very rare for a comedy. I know. Comedy a comedy top is yeah. in my top 100, and this is yeah. one. So, yeah, this should be a good episode. I'm looking forward to it. I'm also of note, because it will make some of our listeners very happy, and others probably not so, but... It's that Love Actually received zero votes. And I actually had people <laughs> send me messages with the voting saying, I vote for this, but it really doesn't matter. Just put my votes towards anything that will make Love Actually lose. So, wow. Yeah, there is some dis, dis, dislike for that film. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> Don't think it's going to be winning a poll anytime soon. No. So to be a part of this voting, listeners, if you would like to do that, each month you can visit patreon.com slash feelinfilm, and for as little as $1 a month, you can support the show and participate in monthly donor pick episode decisions. But for sure, visit that site, check out the different tiers of support we offer, and we would love to have you come be a part of that patron family. All right, Patrick, well, spoilers are in abundance because this movie is from 1967 or so way way old 64 65 66 is it really no we're not doing an auction here oh it was in the 60s okay in the the limitations on the spoiler is is in effect absolutely and listeners you do want to see this for sure if you haven't yet please go seek it out uh and this and especially do not go see the sequel without seeing this movie Okay, I can't talk about the sequel yet, even though I've seen it, but I'll basically say this. I'm going to say something about it. I can't help it. Don't. Don't? Don't? Okay, I won't, but Thank I want you. to. But I want, okay, Have I'm not. Have respect for us non-critically, oh, okay. you know, whatever folks. <laughs> all right. Nothing about Mary Poppins Returns. This is all about Mary Poppins. Yes. All right. Mary <laughs> Spoiler. Poppins. Spoiler free for Mary Poppins Returns. <laughs> okay, well, get me off of this. Uh, desire to start talking about a movie that isn't even out yet, Patrick, and you okay. hit us with your one-word takeaway. All right. 
and it fits perfectly because my one word takeaway is disruptive. I'm going to disrupt. What I'm being to the show right now. (laughs) Yes, you're being very disruptive. And I'm watching this for the second time this year, I think. The first time I watched it, my my son saw it in our queue on our Plex library and was like, what is that, Daddy? And I said, that's Mary Poppins, the longest musical you'll ever watch. And he's like, what's a musical? And I said, well, let's check it out. And he absolutely adored it. And uh, he was able to watch it with me again this time around uh, and loved it just as much this time. But I think everything about this movie from its central plot and characters all the way back to how it actually got made eventually just screams of disruption. I actually haven't seen Saving Mr. Banks. I want to now because of the fact that I'm, you know, I'm finding out more about the backstory. So, yes, it's a shocker, but not really so because. I'm the one guy in the podcast, the movie podcast community that hasn't seen a ton of movies. So sue me or don't because I don't have any money. Um, Anyway, the story begins with the changing of the wind, indicating something interesting is about to begin. And then we are introduced to Mrs. Banks, who is leading a women's suffrage movement, upsetting the status quo there. And then we're introduced to the Banks children who have seemingly run away and are disrupting the duties of one Katie Nana. And then the one person who seems to be in control of how things are is Mr. Banks. Interesting thought. I wonder if that's by design. Not disrupted. However, everything else about this screams of disruption, including the entrance of one Julie Andrews as Mary Poppins and what she ends up doing for the rest of this narrative is just causing nothing but a pleasant disruption. If that's even a correct oxymoron to use. But yeah, I think disruptive is the only word that I can think of to sum up how I think this movie really plays out. Interesting. I love hearing yours because they're always kind of a little off the wall and unexpected. I'm going to let Mary, I'm going to let Mary Poppins give my one word takeaway. How about that? Well, oh, okay. It's super califragilistic, expialidocious, even though the sound of it is something quite atrocious. If you say it loud enough, you'll always sound precocious. Super califragilistic, expialidocious. <laughs> wow. See, yeah, I don't, I don't think you could have said it better. I couldn't, because this is the only word you can possibly actually have as a one-word takeaway, Patrick. I overrule yours, and I am changing it on the spot to super califragilistic. <laughs> expialidocious it's what you say when you don't know what to say and frankly i should probably say it a lot more often based on that definition <laughs> this word throw in, though, your, throw in your movie reviews right there yeah right yeah this word sums it all up for me though and it's the word that would immediately come to my mind i think if we played that word association game where you say mary poppins and i have to quickly answer it with whatever it makes me think of there is so much silliness in this film but there's also a good dose of wisdom even in this song specifically it's a fairy tale it's got great lessons and it also has some of the most unique and original blending of animation and live action elements that i think we've ever seen in cinema so to me i think supercalifragilisticexpialidocious is the perfect word to describe this movie i would not be in disagreement if it weren't for my one more takeaway so i will agree to disagree but possibly agree if my word didn't exist that's like not actually agreeing at all, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's me being your friend right now. I'm being your friend. Well, there are a lot of themes to dig into with this one, but um, let's just start with the titular character here. Mary Poppins is this magical nanny who apparently shows up in times of need. One of my favorite lines in the film happens right away at the beginning. And you even kind of alluded to this or mentioned this in your one more takeaway about the wind. 
Bert's singing and he says, the wind's in the east, mist coming in, like something's a brewing and about to begin. Can't put me finger on what lies in store, but I fear what's to happen all happened before. It's like Battlestar Galactica all over again. I was going to make that reference, so thank you, (laughs) sir. Yes, that is exactly what it reminds me of. And this idea that whatever story we're about to hear is completely cyclical in nature, and it's happened before, and we should accept that and understand that when certain things happen in this story, they're going to reference the past. And instead of that being a roadblock for us as viewers... We right off the bat are able to know, okay, that's all right. It's okay to accept that because this has happened before in some capacity. Right. And we also get to know that, hey, this will probably happen again too. So I really like that we're introduced to that straight away. So she comes into the frame. She comes into their lives. She's fun. She's exciting, but she's also very full of wisdom. And by the way, so is Bert, who for some reason I've always just thought of as kind of this ho-hum little haha sidekick, but I really picked up on a lot more from him this time around. Were there any particular reasons for you, though, that you, what stood out to you the most, I guess I would say, of her lessons and the things that she brought into the lives of the bank's children? Well, first of all, I think that she brings a sense of interesting contrast to even when she begins to read off the kids' wish list items or credentials for what a perfect nanny would be. She says, I am never cross. And then two lines later, she says, I have a cheery... Essentially, she says, I am firm. And so she brings the sense of a both-and mentality where as a nanny, as a character, she never seems to have to be an either or. So you have Mr. Banks who wants this cold, just very gray, if you're thinking about like emotional color nanny. And then you have the Banks children, Jane and Michael, who want this very colorful. And we get almost a combination. We don't get a we get someone who is able to be happy and be able to induce a sense of cheerfulness, but at the same time have this sense of stability. Like I rarely see her laugh in this movie. And she even comments on that when she talks, when, when the, uh, during the scene at uncle Albert's, when she describes the different ways that people laugh and she says, it's just absurd. Um, and so I think one of the not so obvious lessons that I'm learning is it's okay to possess a cheery disposition, but not to flaunt it and not to be obnoxious about it. I think it lives in the line, um, enough is as good as a feast when she's talking to the bank's children. And I think that's kind of how she is as a person where she can, she can exemplify those traits of being cheerful and nice without being just overly obnoxious and overly just almost gesture like. And so she has this interesting composure where you take her seriously but she's really approachable at the same time. And I love that. I love the fact that as a character, not just as an actress, but as a character, she brings that sense of approachability, but also sternness. It's like that teacher that you respect, but also really love. Um, and, and I think that that's, if that's what the director and the creative team were going for, I think it was 
spot on with that. So at the very least, it's the lesson that I pulled away from that, the big one is you can find balance between being firm, being stern, and at the same time having that cheery disposition. Absolutely. And I love that you mentioned the line enough is as good as a feast because we were talking about that just earlier tonight, you know, in our personal chat. I think that's one that can transcend the movie. Like that's a phrase that I feel like I'm going to remember and I can actually take it with that and apply it to my everyday life. Um, it's so simple, right? But it makes perfect sense. And it's just simply her saying to us, Hey, you can live with what you have. You don't necessarily always need more. Uh, another one that really stuck out to me is when she's talking about beauty and she says, a thing of beauty is a joy forever. I like that a lot. She has this incredible way of elevating creativity and art and imagination. And those things inherently can bring you beauty. They don't have to be physical things. Um, and I love that because she's teaching these kids things that matter that are not tangible uh, and that don't revolve around the stuff that they might have. One thing that I found pretty interesting about her personality as well is that there is a moment in this film where she actually kind of has this alternate quality where she is talking to Mr. Banks towards the end and he asks her where she's been and she says, I don't answer that. She says, I'm, I don't have to answer you. And she, she specifically puts her foot down and just refuses to have a conversation and tell, tell the truth about what she's been up to. And I found that pretty interesting because, you know, throughout the film, we see her as generally a positive figure and, and everything she does is right and everything she does is good. But in that moment, I kind of hesitated a minute and I was like, man, maybe she isn't perfectly, you know, what is it? Practically perfect in every way. <laughs> Maybe she does have a little bit of a flaw. She's got some cunningness to her, that's for sure. And I think a lot of times it's it's used to deflect and maybe manipulate in a positive way some of the events that take place. I mean, if this is something that has happened before, we can go on the assumption that if she has gone and kind of impressed her life into other kids that she has this influence over not just the kids themselves, but other people. But there's definitely a manipulative quality that she possesses. And I really picked up on that this time that she doesn't give away all the information at one point before she starts singing the go to sleep lullaby or don't, don't you know stay awake lullaby. She flat out denies the adventure that she and Bert and the kids went on. And I'm like, you are lying to these children. But she's not really. She doesn't say we didn't do that necessarily. She goes, oh, really? I don't recall that or something. I guess she is lying. But I, I I don't know that I can resolve that or I can reconcile that in my head because why does she do that? Why does she why does she keep that ambiguity intact? Um, or maybe she's telling these kids you really did Dream that up, and maybe that's true. Maybe, the, and I think that's what makes her interesting because by the end of the movie, we don't really know. There's, there might be a fan theory out there that did she actually exist? You know, obviously she did at one point because she talked to Mr. Banks, but uh, and other and other people. But 
the things that she does seem very, I don't know, it's persuasive to say the least, but the manipulative quality I think is very apparent in this, but it's done in a way that I think lends itself to a positive outcome. Like I don't, she's not doing anything selfishly in that manipulation. She's not trying to get something that she wants. I think she's trying to, I think she's got a bigger plan, honestly. If I look at this one more, if I look at the movie one more time, I think that I could see a bigger plan being hatched beyond just taking care of the children. And some of that manipulation is probably warranted. I can see that. I, I think that there is a deep need or deep, you know, quality of having control about her where she just has to always have it. So no one else gets to dictate the terms of what's going on in this story with relation to her appearance and her interaction in their lives. It is all on her terms. It is, it is 100% what she wants, how she wants it. And I agree. I think that ultimately that's a positive thing in this because she knows what's best for them. She's almost like an angelic character where if you're a person of faith, you have to accept that this being knows what's best for you <laughs> and that you don't, right? And that's what Mary Poppins expects. She expects that you believe in her and you believe that she will make the right decision no matter what, whether that's giving you an explanation for something or telling you what you need to know um, or not. She also, though, has a sort of vain quality about her that I noticed in the really long animated sequence, which I don't know. I don't know why I never saw this. This thing is like 40 minutes long. It is so long in the middle. But when she wins the race, she's like the way she's kind of reacting to the care, the animated characters who are like yep. swooning and fawning over her, man. Yeah. It's almost like, you know, she wants that. And she really, she has when she starts smiling, you know, that's yeah. part of when she smiles the most. So I just thought that was an uh, intriguing piece of her character. It's almost like she goes there because she knows that she's going to receive all of that attention. So that's really interesting because I noticed that same thing at the very beginning of that animated sequence when they transition into the painting. And she does this – she postures herself in a way where Bert says, you know, you look amazing. And she steps across him and she almost poses and she goes – do you really think so? Like, here, pay me more compliments. And he goes, of course you do. You're amazing. But what I love about her and the song later on in that animated sequence pays tribute to Bert as well. This is what was really interesting this time is I did not notice this, that Bert is her equal, at least in a sense of affection, not in a romantic sense, but in the sense of seeing him as equally valuable. Now, granted, 90% of the lyrics are all about it's a jolly holiday with Mary, <laughs> but there is a section specifically that talks about Bert and how great Bert is. But we see this really interesting, you could call it, I guess, sexual tension. I don't know, but I love their chemistry because they both, maybe in a slightly obnoxious way, they both kind of pay tribute to each other. They pay compliments to one another. Because even after he said, she goes, do you really think so? And he goes, of course you do. And he goes, she goes, you look fine too, Bert. And I think that there's something very sincere about that where, yes, she's a little arrogant, but she also sees the value of the other people in her life. In this case, just, you know, Bert specifically. I think he's the only person that she has opened up to 
maybe direct um, unintentionally or intentionally with her powers or with the things that she does, which obviously plays itself out right before they go into the painting. But I love that there's this kind of history that's hinted at and that she trusts him with that history. I have something to say about that, and I'm glad you brought it up. Because actually, I hope, Blair... it, I hope it doesn't have anything to do with Mary Poppins Returns, because if it does, you can just be quiet right now. I will not talk about Mary Poppins Returns. Okay. Yet. <laughs> okay. So, yes, I actually picked up on that as well. And it really stood out to me, I think partially, too, because we're in this Me Too era where I'm, I have a heightened sense of, of kind of noticing things like this. So... They go through the song initially in Jolly Holiday, and he spends verse after verse just ridiculously praising how wonderful she is, as you mentioned, and talking about how everyone loves her. And she comes back by basically just saying that, I like to hang out with you, and you're pretty sweet. She actually says, it's a Jolly Holiday with you, Bert. Gentlemen like you are few, though you're just a diamond in the rough, Bert. Underneath your blood is blue. You'd never think of pressing your advantage. Forbearance is the hallmark of your creed. A lady needn't fear when you are near. Your sweet gentility is crystal clear. Oh, it's a jolly holiday with you, Bert. A jolly, jolly holiday with you. Two things stood out about that. One, it feels like sarcasm or snark. It feels like she's saying, dude, why don't you make a move? Like, I'm getting tired of you being a complete wuss and not pushing this further but it also screams of like her saying you're a really good guy and women don't have to worry about you raping them because you're not going to do that you know what i mean like it's it's pretty amazing how much is in (laughs) that little package of lines what i mean i'm serious that's what it says but what i was going to tell you is when you look at the history of the film you learn that this part was actually thrown in to make sure, per the author's request, that the Bert and Mary relationship was not mistaken for a romantic one. Because in early drafts, the film was trending in that direction. And so this is how they kind of separated that Mary and Bert are just friends. Yeah, well, I just uh, the whole Me Too thing has tainted that second approach that you've taken like <laughs> i'm glad you're not going to rape me i mean no i i seriously doubt that the 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 creative team was like you know what we really need to get this point across guys so let's just put some happy go lucky lyrics in there that make bert look like an emasculated idiot you know no i think the fact is bert is he's safe he's the ducky to her mary poppins i mean sorry that was a 16 candles reference or a anyway but i think that when you look at their relationship, I think it's a very sincere relationship. Not honestly sincere, just a sincere relationship. And it's one that's it's very approachable. Like, I love their, I said before, I love their chemistry because it feels honest. It feels like they're not trying with each other. If they have history, I don't think it's romantic history, but I think it's one of those best friend histories where they've both thought about it. But they know that it could never work out because she flies and he doesn't because he can't hold down a job, you know, anything like that. And the, the fact is, I think the result of it is something that is pretty entertaining for for me, at least, to, to watch them together. Absolutely. And I, I was going to ask you before we move on about Bert here. Do you have any issue with him breaking the fourth wall like he does in that opening segment and then a few times throughout the film? 
Mm, I do because there's no reason for it. I think that the opening sequence where he is entertaining the folks in the in the audience, I think is enough of a kind of a cold open that he doesn't have to um, get us to Cherry Tree Lane. Maybe he's walking, but um, it didn't bother me. I just don't think it's necessary. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's necessary. I really enjoy it personally. I kind okay. of paid attention to it this time around and, and you know, I, I like it a lot. And I think that it just gives the film another magical quality to it. And it's, it's a fairy tale. And so yeah. it reminds us at different points throughout the film, even when we're not in an animated world with the crew, that this is not reality. This is yeah. something different. I just think it could be done better. I, I think it could be done as effectively with voiceover. But yeah, it adds an angle to it. It just wasn't something that was really like wow factor for me. And it's not blatant. It's it's 1960s, you know, breaking into the fourth wall. It's not Deadpool where he's trying to yeah. jump into the camera and like direct it or anything. Right. <laughs> well, let's talk about the bank's parents, um, George and Winifred. Is that her name? I believe, I believe it is. So, yeah. Yeah. So the problem isn't that the Bankses don't love their kids. It's that they're so preoccupied with other things that they're kind of failing to appreciate this time in the life of their family. They need a good shock to switch things around, and Mary is the right person to administer that shock. So I guess, how do you see the parents? And do you think that Mary's methods of bringing the family together, they obviously worked, but do you think that they were the right ones? Um, I think that you have ambitious parents that see the aspect of nanny-ness as being kind of a good replacement for giving their children activities to participate in. I kind of struggled with this question because I don't know at what point these kids, I guess, aren't old enough to be in school or is this summer? I mean, I don't know really what time period this is in, in terms of like the seasons, Um, because obviously they're not going to school. They're not doing anything where they have to have supervision all day. And so when I look at the Banks' parents, when I when I see these two, it was more obvious with with Mr. Banks than it was with Winifred that there's neglect on their part. But I think that their stature and their ambition really dictated more about what they thought they were giving back, not just to their family, but to the world around them. And I think it had a ne- has a negative effect on their relationship with the kids, which I think is what induces those multiple instances of them running away, because that's what we get early on is this sense of the kids have done this before. What's happened before? Well, you know, has it's all happened before it's happening again. And having employed as many nannies as they have, obviously we're getting insight into the fact that something's not working. Something's missing. The kids are rebelling. The kids are not getting what they need. And, what Mary Poppins does in that disruption is she brings a sense of cohesion with the kids, giving them what they need, but at the same time causing disruption to both Mr. Banks and Winifred in their respective worlds because of kind of how the household is reacting because of what she's instilling in the children and how they're reacting. Um, it's really interesting. There's that one scene where they're at the breakfast table and the kids are running around. They're bringing flowers to Winifred and, and, and George 
Banks is like getting just all PO'd about it. And Winifred goes, George, I'm sorry you're so cross. He goes, no, I'm fit as a fiddle. <laughs> but you can tell that it's grating on him because something is starting to get out of whack as a result of Mary Poppins being around. So I think she brings a real interesting dynamic in changing up their worlds a little bit. Yes. So I found myself relating to Mr. Banks big time. And I'm sure that's probably not necessarily a great thing. I'm a wonderful parent. I'm going to just go ahead and throw that out there. And I know that. and I'm not worried about that. But from an organizational standpoint and from a need to have things in their place and be routine, and the moment that someone tries to kind of walk in in some whimsical manner and start to change things around, that would not work well for me at all. I would I would lose my mind. I would be so completely rattled by that. Um, it's interesting because at work, I maintain this attitude of simper gumby. That's a, a phrase we use in the Navy, always flexible. And I try to do that. But when I'm, when it comes to my home life, I am a creature of habit. And much like Mr. Banks is, that would, that would bother me. Um, so I, I understand that part of his personality. And I like that because it's a way to show us that he's not a terrible father. You know, this is a Disney movie. It's PG. It's based on a fairy tale and a book. This is not a 2018 film. I feel like today's world, he'd be an alcoholic. Um, he'd be neglecting his kids. He might be verbally abusive. You know what I mean? Like that's the kind of parenting, negative parenting. Whereas Mr. Banks to me is a much more realistic character that could exist in families everywhere. Um, it's not like his family is in super major crisis. They just need a little bit of a push in the right direction to come back together as a cohesive unit. That's the way that I see this. Um, I also find it interesting that Mrs. Banks is a, a suffragette. That's a fun little political statement that gets thrown into this film, but is appropriate for the era. There's a line in the song Sister Suffragette that stuck out to me. And again, I, it's probably because this is not a Me Too thing, but a, it's another like big cultural push type thing right now where she says, Though we adore men individually, we agree that as a group they're rather stupid. And I made a tweet today, and I was like, that is so 2018, right? <laughs> so Mary Poppins oh, is a feminist movement in a nutshell. Kind it? of, yeah. But you know, because of that, she's also a little bit out of touch. I think she likes to believe that she's closer to the children. She likes to... She sees Mr. Banks and his detachment, and she likes to kind of name that, but I don't think she likes to own her own detachment and her own, you know, items in her life that take her attention away from them. So that was a, a pretty interesting thing to see about the family as well. But one thing that I didn't really note until I was doing some research, but once I saw this brought up, it made perfect sense, is that Mr. Banks is sort of on this hero's journey. And, uh, you know, those who don't know what the hero's journey is, you can Google it. Um, it's a concept made by, is it Joseph Campbell, Patrick? Yeah, Joseph Campbell made it, made it famous. Yeah, a scholar in the, the 40s or so where it's basically these are 12 stages of pretty much any hero story ever. So do you mind if I kind of run through this a little bit? And I want to see if we agree with this or not. Yeah, go for it. All right, so it starts off the first the first heading, the first part of this is ordinary world. And that's pretty 
understandable right off the bat. You know, Mr. Banks seems pretty content with his life. He's a bank manager. Pretty much everything about this world that he lives in before Mary Poppins arrives, uh, minus the Admiral shooting off his cannon in the middle of the day, every day in the middle of the city. That's always made me like a little confused. I've always been like, that's the one element of this film that I've never been able to buy into. I'm like, that it's a, wouldn't it's a clock happen. tower. It's a clock tower. That's what it is. It's the clock tower in this weird world. Look, the fact is when you have a six o'clock clock tower bell that induces people to have stations at the home and that becomes ritual, you kind of expect anything to be normal at that point. True that, true that. Well, he's a normal guy in a mostly ordinary world, and he's going through this inner crisis, and he's basically heading for a workaholic breakdown at this point. Um, he believes in discipline and order, like we noted, um, and he does not know how to let his kind of natural, fun-loving side show through. So next comes the call to adventure. Well, what happens? He gets jolted out of this state because the nanny quits, and he hasn't been very successful in finding a permanent nanny. Nammy? Nanny? So he decides to take control. And he goes on this kind of strict militaristic nanny that he thinks will mold Michael and Jane into future bank managers. Like, that's what he wants to find. This is a great scene, by the way, when the nannies all show up at the door. And they are, quite literally, Patrick, blown away by Mary Poppins. I think that's some awesome imagery. I also don't think that the phrase blown away probably existed in the 60s, and so that's just like future attachment of lingo that, that came in about later, but I like thinking of it that way because it makes it kind of fun. Um, but in this call to adventure, Michael and Jane want this alternative sweet, kindly nanny, right, who will play games with them, etc. That's what they want their dad to give. Next is refusal of the call. Um, Mr. Banks thinks that Michael and Jane are like not of a right mind. He thinks they're crazy. He tears up the ad. He throws it in the fireplace. So he basically refuses their call to action. Um, he will not go about this the way that they want him to go about. And what happens? Mary Poppins comes into the picture. Meeting the mentor. That's the next one. So Mary Poppins enters the bank's house and she surprises him by bringing him the ad that he'd just torn up. And he doesn't know what to do. He tries to avoid kind of talking to her because he can't handle it. And so she just hires herself, basically, and immediately becomes a role model uh, for the Banks family. But by making Banks jealous of her, she forces him to recognize his own inner Mary Poppins. And he ends up needing to imitate her uh, in ways that he can so that she will not be necessary anymore. The next stage is crossing the threshold. Uh, Mr. Banks allows her to work her magic on the household. Um, he lets it happen. Everyone seems pretty cheerful. Mary takes the kids on magical adventures. The maids even get happy. And things are generally looking up. This is how story arcs typically go. Things are moving in the right direction. But then come tests, allies, and enemies. Mr. Banks doesn't know what to make of Mary. He doesn't know if she's an ally or an enemy or what. And turns out that the people he thinks are his allies, which are his co-workers at the bank, are actually his enemies. And the people he thinks that are undermining him, Mary and Bert, are really on his side. Next is Approach to the Inmost Cave, probably the weirdest named one in the entire Joseph Campbell mythology, in my opinion, because it's 
doesn't always make a lot of sense when you're talking about stories, but Mr. Banks didn't count on the fact that the bank is a boring place is essentially what this boils down to. The kids get there and the guys who run the bank, they thought the kids were going to be hyped up about getting into financial savings. I don't know why. That's ridiculous. Um, but of course, Michael just wants to use his tuppence to buy seeds to feed the birds with because that's what Mary Poppins taught him to do. In the eyes of an employer, this reflects poorly on George, um, making him retreat into that kind of inmost cave ordeal. George expects to get fired, and of course he does. Um, after he trudges over to the bank at night, they blame him for Michael's actions and the ensuing panic. He, like a good father, accepts full responsibilities, and then he's out of being a partner at the bank. Everything he was talking about at the beginning of the movie, his discipline and supposedly content life at the bank manager, is now over. Reward? Seizing the sword? Surprisingly, George feels that he's you know, feels pretty good. Um, he remembers a dumb joke that Jane and Michael learned from Mary Poppins' Uncle Albert. He laughs. He tells it to the bank managers who don't get it at first and then eventually get it later. He leaves the bank in a great mood. Um, he's either having a nervous breakdown and potentially going to jump off a bridge, as the maid seems to think, or he's finally loosening up to the way that Mary Poppins has come around and taught him. He's seeing that reward in sight now. The road back, the happy hyper George who arrives home weirds everyone out. But nope, he's discovered that he's actually happy now and that the bank really was just a cage that was kind of holding him in and preventing the real George from breaking out. So now he's back with his family and ready to start taking on this new dad thing and taking it up a level. Next to last is the resurrection. Instead of trying to force his children to learn about investing their money, he gets a better idea and he decides to take them to fly a kite, which is usually going to be more successful with kids, I can assure you, as a parent. Um, he sings with them. He joins his his wife as well. and She uses her Votes for Women sash as the tail of the kite. It's this whole family affair. And he finally learns to embrace the role that Mary Poppins has once played, which, of course, then leads to her having a chance to leave because she doesn't need to fill the void. He is resurrected. He has changed. He has become the person that he needs to become. And then the final stage is return with the elixir. Uh, now that Master Banks is a great dad again, he's ready to spread that same sort of joy that Mary Poppins is capable of spreading. So he's going to have fun with his kids all of their lives. Um, he's going to go forth and hopefully show this side of himself to other people, which will inspire them to do the same. So that's kind of the quick breakdown I've seen of Mr. Banks going through this hero's journey. I think some of the stages definitely fit more than others. Um, I think every time that you do this project or with our analysis with there's 12 stages, sometimes some of them are going to feel a little bit shoehorned in. Uh, but for the most part, I buy this. This is kind of Mr. Banks' story in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think if you were to make it a little bit more generic where the hero's journey could be summed up in basically three stages, departure, initiation, and return, this definitely fits that mold. And it really raises the question, who is, what is Mary Poppins? Who is it really about? Who's the central character in Mary Poppins? I don't think it's Mary Poppins herself. I think it's Mr. Banks, honestly. And this viewing really helped kind of reinforce that when I, when I saw the the movie through his lens in a similar way when we watch a movie like ex machina through the three different character lenses and how it gives us an interesting 
narrative from all three perspectives. Looking at it from from George Banks' perspective, there's definitely a departure, an initiation and a return. The departure being that his world shaken up by Mary Poppins, beginning with that crazy interview where she even says, on second thought, I think a trial period might be in order. She's actually interviewing him. I know. And she says, I'll give you one week, you know, and it's so, <laughs> it's so clever and fun, but she turns the tables on him and he hits his head twice on the, uh, you know, on the, on the fireplace ceiling because he's just so kind of abrupt, uh, and, and just kind of distraught. And then that initiation where he learns to navigate the unfamiliar world of this adventure, which is the adventures of Mary Poppins and seeing how his kids react to what she is kind of teaching them, you know, learning the obnoxious word supercalifragilisticexpialidocious and the joke about the wooden, the man with the wooden leg named Smith and all this stuff and how it's really rocking him to his core. This is not normal. This is not what I'm comfortable with. I'm not used to this frivolity and this spontane- spontaneity that exists in the lives of my kids. And then finally, this return to a new normal where the hero returns to the familiar world, but he's changed or the world itself has changed. And he comes back um, physically changed, like his clothes are messed up because of the interaction with the folks at the bank. And he sees his kids in a new light and he is wanting to go out and connect with them as opposed to trying to take the toppins and make an investment in a, this cold bank that he is um, is connected with. So yeah, I definitely think that at least on the three part, the three stage level, it works really well. And those different stages in between can can definitely fit in some capacity. Well, it's a nice little flipping of the script here because the, the movie's called Mary Poppins. And so everything leads us to believe that it's about Mary Poppins. It's her story. She's the one in the title. She's the one on the poster. She's the star actress. She's the magic one that came from Hogwarts or wherever she came from. It's pretty amazing to me because as an adult, we see this Mr. Banks arc pretty clearly. But as a kid, man, all I wanted was Mary Poppins as a nanny. Like, I didn't see anything about Mr. Banks. Like, he was just an, a character that existed to, to be there for whatever plot reasons they needed to have some conflict, you know, um, and eventually a feel good moment with the dad at the end. And I, I just think it's pretty fascinating and it speaks to how well the story is adapted yeah. um, and how, how deep it is and how layered it is. Yeah. And there are three conversations that take place all with him at the focal point. The first one being with Mary Poppins during her initial interview. The second being the confrontation with her where she sort of, persuades him to end up taking the kids to the bank, which really sets the third act in motion, which is honestly as a kid where I checked out, like after they go to the bank, I'm like, okay, I'm done. There's no more to watch except maybe that chimney sweep sequence. And then there's that third conversation with him and Bert where he comes to that realization that something needs to change amidst this chaos. And that change needs to come from him, not just from the circumstances that are being dictated to him. And so all three of these moments of what I would consider could be part of that three-stage process happen with him at the focal point, either with him, with Mary Poppins, or Bert, or even the, the guys at the bank. And you don't notice that as, as a kid because you're persuaded, just like 
these characters in the movie are that it's all about Mary Poppins. And rightly so, because she brings an amazing magic and amazing, fantastic world to not only the kids' lives, but to also us as an audience. Yes, she does. She brings happiness, which is what it makes me and I, and I feel. And I love the way that she continually promotes that idea that happiness doesn't cost much of anything. One of my favorite scenes is the I Love to Laugh song. I think it's probably my favorite song, actually. Um, just this visual idea of floating while laughing and having fun, it makes a lot of sense to me because it represents that feeling of being on a high when you're happy and when you feel good about life. And then the concept of having to feel sad or when you start to feel sad is when you quote unquote come down from that high. It's just a really, really well done image. Um, and it's wrapped up in this super fun song. So I was wondering what made you the happiest what were the happiest moments in this film for you? Yeah, I think I love to laugh is pretty great because you've got this <laughs> someone who promotes happiness is going against the status quo of this obnoxious laughter induced moment. Um, I thought it's a it's a funny scene and I love the little jokes that are that are in there. Um, but it also says a lot from a psychological standpoint that the places of vulnerability for a person exist when they're both laughing and crying. Like a person's laugh, they can't fake that. I mean, they can, but when a person is genuinely laughing, that's complete vulnerability. They're not trying to, they're not acting when they're genuinely laughing. Like when I am belting out a laugh, I sound a lot like my dad. Like I have my dad's laugh and I can tell when I am just genuinely happy and when I'm genuinely just tickled at something. But there's this other avenue when you're genuinely sad in the way in which you cry that is, you know, we call it the ugly cry. Um, you and I were just talking about science fair. I got to watch it tonight. And the ugly cry that the the winner of the, the best and fair gives at the very beginning of the documentary, I'm like, that is uncontrollable, just crying, ugly cry joy. He's not putting on a show. It's completely who he is. And there's something very cool about the fact that you center a song around the one of two things that people can't control, that people genuinely find complete happiness and joy doing, which is laughing. And they don't they can't have any kind of composure with that. So I thought it was fantastic. I I thought my favorite sequence in the whole movie, and you may not be asking this, was the the whole bit with the chimney sweeps just rummaging through the bank's house and picking up on lines like votes for women, you know, I'm like, you know, just make up something like go to the bathroom, step in time and, you know, flush the toilet, step in time, things like that. I mean, they were just picking up on everything. And I was like, that's got to be a lot of fun. And just I know it was choreographed and I know it was lyrically part of the song, but just to feel like that was some spontaneousness with them was just a lot of fun. It made me made me happy. Yeah, and you know, as big game players, I think Mary has a wonderful philosophy. She says, in every job that must be done, there's an element of fun. You find the fun and snap, the job's a game. And this is really the essence of what she's preaching and what she's selling is that, you know, life is going to often be boring and full of chores and full of things that you just have to do that aren't 
on the surface going to be fun, but that you can turn them into that. You can make an intentional effort to finding fun in life where it doesn't necessarily exist um, without you looking for it. And it'll make your life a lot more ecstatic if you do that. Right. And I think that plays into what you were talking about, about um, the saying enough is as good as a feast because the kids, I, I was like Michael whenever they were getting ready to go to the park and he was like, I wanted to tidy up the nursery again. And they're like, yeah, I do too. That was fun. Cause I felt like him, like I missed out on that. But the fact is she gives them just enough of this wow factor, this, oh my gosh, that you feel like it can't be topped. And you go back to that comment you made about this, like an angel, like someone, like a guardian angel who knows the future and knows kind of what's best for you as a, as a child. And I think that from a faith-based perspective, I think that we feel like there's a sense from, from at least my standpoint where I feel like, oh, this is as good as it's going to get. And because of like how my faith navigates me, I realize, oh no, there's actually something better that comes along. There's a, there's something better than what I just got here, or I didn't expect it to be this good down the line. And I feel like that's kind of how we are as people, where we think that we get this wow factor in moments in our lives and we don't think that something can top it. And then a month later or a year later, something else tops it. Um, like when I got married, I was like, wow, nothing can beat this. And then I saw my son for the first time being born. I was like, wow, nothing can beat that. And they're not like one is better than the other. It's just like these are just different moments that we completely embrace that happiness and joy. And I think Mary Poppins as a film emits that kind of wow factor where it's not like something is better than the other. It's like, look at all these things that can be, if you just allow yourself to let go of some of that control and just let things kind of happen the way they do. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. Um, gosh, is there anything else that we want to touch on? Is there something I missed? Um, I was going to say, I love the, um, during the big 40 minute animation sequence Mm -hmm. in the painting, I like the attention to detail, particularly with the, the carousel horses when they would hit the, hit the ground, they would create little dirt tracks in the, in the ground, like little lines where the, where the pole would drag in the, uh, in the dirt. I thought that was kind of cool. Um, I paid closer, closer attention to some of the background characters and some of the detail of them dancing when they were singing supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, particularly the, uh, the fat lady and her short husband, how she would play the tambourine and then two beats would be in her hand with the tambourine and two beats would be on his head and back and forth and back and forth. I just thought those little details are really, really entertaining for me. That's great. That's really great. I, yeah, I, it's fun to be able to watch a movie like this that has a lot going on in those sequences. They're very mm-hmm. chaotic, and you've seen it several times, so you can do that. You can kind of focus in on those elements when your eyes don't have to be drawn to Mary and Bert you know, tap dancing in the middle of the frame. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I thought was really fun is the movie ends with Bert saying, Goodbye, Mary Poppins. Don't stay away too long. And I thought, well... Gosh, that only took 54 years <laughs> for her to come back. Bert, I think she stayed away a little too long, but now she's coming back, and I still can't talk about it, right? Can I talk about it? Nope. No. Gosh darn it. All right. Well, if I can't talk about it, then we're just going to go ahead and do our connecting points, I think. So I'm going to let you go first. 
Well, you mentioned the hero's journey, and this is really at the heart of what I connected with the most. And so the scene that that really quantified this was the humiliation that banks felt at the bank or seeming humiliation. And I really do believe that Mary Poppins is about Mr. Banks's journey. And this moment to me brings his story full circle in embracing the truth of the world around him that he really must now live in the world where Mary Poppins exists, not where she's there all the time, but where she does exist in the possibilities of what she brings to the world that he is now living in with his wife and his children. It's this world where working hard to support your family isn't enough. It's in this moment when he shouts that famous word that you so eloquently brought in your one word takeaway um, that he's releasing that control. I mean, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious in and of itself is a way to saying, I don't have control. I can't control the situation anymore. It's really up to fate or up to God or whoever, you know, whatever your, your beliefs are. And realizing that this new normal is in front of him. And something that I realized for myself is that in a lot of ways, this movie feels like a Shakespearean comedy where Everyone gets what they want. Banks becomes a partner at the bank at the end of the movie, but I'm not really sure how that's going to play in this new normal, but you know, we don't really get the outcome of that. It's just, yay, everybody's happy. But in general, though, this moment is the theatrical exhale of a character who has held so much of his himself just really tightly. It evokes this freedom that he feels, even though he doesn't know what's going to come next. And for the first time, the future of Mr. Banks is really uncertain, but it couldn't be brighter for him. Also, I love that he used the toppins to buy tape and string to mend that kite. I mean, hashtag dad win. All right. That's just pretty, pretty great. Yeah, absolutely. I love that, too. It's a it's a fantastic, quote unquote, tying in of that theme that has existed from the very beginning of the film. And his wife uses one of her uh, one of her sashes. To... Sashes. Yes. So. That's right. She sure does her suffragette uh, vote for women sash. As a tail for the kite, yeah. As a tail for the kite, yeah. Well, mine is the song Feed the Birds. And it comes after this whole sequence where Mary Poppins basically manipulates and tricks Mr. Banks. And I think that's great because Michael was right. She is extremely tricky. He says at the very beginning, and sure enough, she is. He tricks, she tricks Mr. Banks into taking the kids to the bank. Um, but they're confused, and they say, this could not have been his idea. Our dad doesn't care about us enough to want to take us anywhere. Um, but at least he can show us the sights of the city. And she says, but sometimes a person we love through no fault of his own can't see past the end of his nose. That's what she tells them. And that's when she launches into this beautiful allegory about a little old woman who sits on the church steps all day with bags of bird food for sale, and she pleads with passerbys to give a little of themselves, or as she was stating in the earlier sentence, to see past the end of their noses, and to do something kind for someone in need, whether it's a person or a creature, and she pleads with them to feed the birds. And not only is this a really lovely song, man, I, I used to make fun of it a lot, to be honest. I thought it was really dorky. And I didn't like it because it was slow and didn't have a hop, you know, hop and beat like a lot of the songs do in the soundtrack. Um, but 
now I understand it as an adult. I see when Mr. Bank doesn't let them feed the birds because he's eventually on his way back to the bank and he's going to go stand up to his boss. And there's a moment where he looks for the lady, but she's gone. And I really think that this is implying that she's dead. And he essentially has missed his chance to feed the birds. And so there's this new depth of meaning for me when it comes to this song. And it, it hit me really hard because we just, I guess we can't allow this to happen. And I, you know, I've been convicted before personally of just every time I see a homeless person. Seattle has a very huge problem with um, homeless population right now. So they're everywhere, to be frank, in the city. And I see it in my face. And I often wonder, well, what are we supposed to do about that? What can we do about that? Um, and I think that this song kind of speaks to that because whether it's a homeless person on the side of the road, whether it's a bird that needs some crumbs, whatever the case may be, we have opportunities every day to help others and to see a need and meet it at some level. And if we don't, I think that this song and this portion of the film show us that these opportunities can pass us by. And to a negative effect for those that were in need. So yeah, I think it's a lot more than just a sweet song. It teaches them a lot and the way that it ties into this growth for their dad as well, I think is really, really well done. Yeah. And it ties really well into one of the overarching themes, which is this fact that there's a sense of inconvenience that comes with that. You know, um, I think something that we've tried to do as a, as a family is to have like bottled water and peanut butter crackers in our car. So that when we pass by and somebody's got a, a sign up that says we'll work for food or something like that, we have something to, to hand them instead of feeling like, Oh, what can we do? Or, you know, turning our heads and putting our hand up next to our face and be like, I don't see you. I don't see you. It's a, it's a really good idea. It's, it's something that at least, puts you in a position where you're doing something and it is inconvenient because you might be in a set of traffic where the green, you know, the light's green. You're like, Oh great. What can I do? What can I do? Well, take a couple of seconds, stop your car, roll down the window, hand the stuff and, and go on. So it's Mary Poppins is a, is a story of inconvenience. And it's also a story of overcoming that inconvenience because the outcome and the opportunity is a lot more beneficial through that inconvenience. That's good. Yeah. See, I love that. We ended on a note of you making an awesome recommendation for people that something tangible, they can actually go feed the birds or the homeless, you know, yeah, that works too. You can feed the birds your water and peanut butter crackers, I guess. Are birds allergic to peanut butter? I don't know. They might be, but whatever. You're doing something nice. (laughs) Maybe, or you might be murdering them. So Google that listeners before you go give peanut butter crackers to the birds. (laughs) All right, man. Well, this has been good. Um, I am really excited for everyone to see Mary Poppins Returns. Um, It's good. That's what I'm going to say is it's good. And I'm glad that we're going to get to talk about it. But there's something coming a little bit before that because Mary Poppins Returns is two weeks away. So, Patrick, (laughs) what's coming next week and where can people find you online? My most anticipated movie of 2018 is coming next week. And I'm so excited to be talking about it. This had me hyped from... This time last year, when I saw the teaser for it, I probably had to change my pants because I was so excited about it. I mean, this is just, yes, it's Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. It's based on a story arc that uh, I read several years ago. It's a really amazing story. The animation alone, I think, is worth seeing. And 
I'm just totally jacked about seeing it. So come back for that next week. We'll be talking about that. In the meantime, if you want to connect with me on social media, you can find me at Facebook and Twitter, S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H. That's Shoeless Patch on both of those platforms. Be sure to at me or tag me. That's the best way that you can get me to talk to you because of, you know, just there's a lot going on. And um, yeah, so find me there. And you can always find me on Twitter. That's probably the best place to find me at Feelin' Film. I'm actively engaging on that form, platform at all the time. And then you can also find us both in our Feelin' Film Facebook group. You can search for that, find it pretty easily, or you know, click a link in your show notes, and that will take you right to it. So join that. We'd love to have you be a part of that 500-person or so strong community. It's growing, and it's just an awesome place to come talk about movies each and every week. I also want to drop a quick plug, Patrick. Monday, tomorrow morning, December 10th, we will be announcing the Seattle Film Critics Society Award nominations on Twitter from 9 to 11 a.m. Pacific time. So would love to have as many people there paying attention to that and seeing what awesome award nominees we came up with. My votes are part of that, so I'm really excited to get to share that with the world and then at some point this week give our votes and a week away we'll be announcing our winners which will be an even more fun experience uh, but i think that the nominees that the seattle film critics society came up with are very well representative of our group dynamics uh, knowing everybody in the group and they are wide ranging in style and in genre um, and so i think it's going to be a lot of fun to see the reactions uh, and that's how you can check them out online. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Until next time, stay positive. <laughs> Come on. You can do it. Keep feeling film. Do it. Do, do it. Feeling film. Do it. Do it. <laughs> and keep feeling film. <laughs>